Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Thursday, May 29th. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the Ritz-Carlton Hotel is inviting fans fans? Anyway, well-heeled travelers to submit six-word stories that they call six-word wows about staying in the Ritz-Carlton, and they'll be turned into ads. Here are some examples. Honeymoon, lost camera, priceless memories reimagined, dinner till dawn, laughter, years regained. Dinner till dawn? Here's your 4.30 a.m. pork chop, sir. All right, I got one, I got one. Sat on bed, naked. How many others did too? Don't think. And that is why they don't do 11-word essays. Anyway, this whole six-word fiction, it's sometimes called flash fiction. I guess back when flash mobs were seen as cool and not as a new way to say wilding to scare Fox News viewers. Anyway, six-word fiction stems from this story about Hemingway. Probably didn't happen. But Hemingway composed the world's shortest short story, and it was the following. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. Ah... Now let's for a second put aside the fact that the Ritz-Carlton is launching an ad campaign inspired by a terse tale of infant mortality. But there's this. Anyone who has ever had a baby has also had at least one pair, and possibly many pairs of baby shoes that were never worn. There's no tragedy involved, right? There's no story involved. Right now on eBay, uh, I looked up baby shoes. For four-year-olds, there are 13,147 never-worn pair on sale. So then I said, all right, well, what about specifically, let's think about Hemingway, killed himself in Ketchum, Idaho. I went to Craigslist in Idaho. In Boise, never-worn baby shoes, size five, tag still on, an original price, 42, exclamation. It just isn't the sad tragedy that Hemingway imagined. For sale baby shoes only becomes a short story when we ponder it. And when I tell you this is a short story of great import, it's actually a remarkable feat of filling in the blanks of the meaning of a thing being almost entirely influenced by the context of the thing. Baby shoes never worn is a literary genre with a deep debt to a ubiquitous eBay offering. For sale. Pillow mint. Never licked. Ah. On today's show, there is tumult afoot on Wall Street. The age of hostile takeover bids and barbarians at the gate may be back. And Jordan Ellenberg has written a new book. It's called How Not to Be Wrong. And it's all based on math. I love math. And finally, in my spiel, I'll talk about the passing of the creator of an iconic graphic. And related to that, in some way, we'll be playing a game. Here's a tease. What is one plus C. One plus C equals seven. In some way, it's related to that. I don't want to tell you too much. But first, hostile takeovers, hedge funds, and Botox. A takeover bid is roiling Wall Street. It's harkening back to the days of barbarians at the gate. And the deal playing out now could even lay down a precedent for other activist investors to take over companies. But that's getting a little ahead of the story. So here's what's happening now. 
drug company Valiant. It makes products like the antidepressant Wellbutrin, but mostly it makes deals. They just bought Bausch & Lomb, and they have their eyes on Botox maker Allergan. What Valiant is doing is teaming up with this compelling Wall Street buccaneer-type figure, hedge fund manager Bill Ackman. Ackman recently stealthily purchased 10% of Allergan's stock. That's $4 billion worth, in fact. So now, when Allergan stockholders vote on Valiant's offers, well, Valiant already has 10% of the vote locked up. Jeffrey McCracken, managing editor of Global Deals coverage for Bloomberg, where he is now, and you hear the people in the background. Hi, Jeffrey. Hey there. Thanks for having me. So this is Wall Street wowed. It's daring. It's a little unprecedented. And it's getting kind of nasty. So, I mean, is that why this all seems so entertaining? Yeah, yeah. Well, ugly is entertaining, right? I mean, usually in these deals, they don't quite get down in the the mud the way you're seeing here. Typically, what happens is you got a company that gets approached, or they're, they're the target, and what they'll say is, it's not that we think the other guys are bad guys. We just think we can do so much better on our right. own, and all that earnings guidance we give, have given you before, we can actually do so much better. So they usually spend more about talking up their future opportunities, and they, and, or they'll say the other guy's trying to buy them on the cheap. Right. They don't usually spend their time just beating up on the other guy. And that's what's really going on here is they're, they're attacking uh, Valiant and Allergan are attacking each other in a, in a way that is highly unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The genteel world of billionaires. So why has it gotten so ugly? Is it because everyone was surprised that Bill Ackman bought up 10% of the company? Is it because did one of the sides start it? You know what? These companies just see the world so differently. Um, Valiant is, as you had said earlier, they're a deal machine. And, and really what they're all about is they buy companies. They strip out a lot of their spending. They, they get rid of their research and development. They get rid of HR and all these overhead costs. And they just they jam it into the Valiant system. Allergan is one of these, like a lot of the big healthcare pharmaceutical companies. They spend billions and billions of dollars on R&D. And they'll have a lot of misses until they get a big hit like a Botox or something else. They view themselves as scientists. I think the other guys view themselves as capitalists, and there's your clash. You know, except for the fact that their signature product is Botox, which, you know, has sort of a whiff of the vein about it. If if we were casting this in Hollywood terms, Allergan would be a bunch of guys in white lab coats and pretty much people who really believe in science, and the other guys would be the barbarians at the gate, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, that would be uh, Valiant might be, you know, Michael Douglas with a hair slicked back chewing on a cigar. Right. And, yeah. and uh, Allergan, I don't know, pick your pick your principal actor. Maybe it's Tom Hanks, uh, you know, with, with some gray hair on the sides and a, and a little mustache in, in his lab coat. The ghost, the ghost of Jimmy Stewart. That's what it would be. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, OK, so give me the other case. Why would that be a good thing if you were on the Valiant side? If you're an Allergan shareholder, you are going to get a lot more for this company now than you were going to get, you know, weeks ago before this offer showed up on your doorstep. You know, the, the shares were trading at 130, 140, and now you're getting an offer for 160 something, and Allergan's trading at close to 160 something. So there's the positive. If you're a if you're a shareholder, you're going to get a lot of money right away. Um, you're also going to get shares in Valiant, which has been doing nothing but going straight up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Valiant shares have gone up and up and up and up for year after year. So you are getting money now that you weren't going to get, and you're getting an opportunity to ride the, the Valiant train. The concern some people have is is how long that train will keep it rolling, since that train is often about doing another deal and another deal yeah. and another deal. So when you raise the uh, question of the rising stock price, this brings to mind the fact that Bill Ackman, this Buccaneer hedge fund guy, bought into the company before anyone knew the company was subject to a takeover bid. So he was kind of buying low. And because of his own actions in teaming with Valiant, that stock price rose. Why isn't that insider trading? 
Because you can trade on your own inside information. That's the, that's the, really the best way to explain it to people. It, it is inside information, but it's your own inside information, and you can trade on your knowledge of what you know. Uh, hopefully that – I know it sounds convoluted, but that's really the best answer I can give anybody. I get it. Okay, so this is entertaining, or this is unusual, and this has uh, certainly captivated the street, as they say. But if I'm not an investor, if I'm someone outside of this, if I'm not even someone who's going to get Botox in the next six months, does any of this really affect me? Probably not. I think what you're, what could be interesting is if we see more of this, if we see some other big activist types, guys like Carl Icahn or, or Dan Loeb, who's taken on Sony right now in Japan, we see some other big activist guys start partnering up with companies to go after, you know, other big people, uh, other big companies. Then you really do have, you know, barbarians uh, pounding away at the gate uh, of much bigger targets than, than really were ever thought possible in the past. Jeffrey McCracken, managing editor for Global Deals at Bloomberg. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure. Jordan Ellenberg is the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. The publishing materials say it is the Freakonomics of Math. Wait, isn't Freakonomics sort of the Freakonomics of Math? I mean, economics needs math, right? Isn't that like calling some later book the eat, pray, love of spiritualism, ingesting, and romance? I think, though, that I am in a mode of questioning everything because I just read How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking, and it's a really good read. It's a mix of the anecdotal with some equations, and it's written in a very inviting way, sort of the opposite of what we think of of a math guy as being able to communicate. Hello, Jordan. How are you? I'm great. Great to be on. Jordan, why do you think that math has this singular place of being the one area of knowledge that people are really happy to distance themselves from? Even if we don't know Spanish, we don't say, hey, I don't know Spanish. I'm pretty proud of that. But we do. A lot of people say it with math. Well, I think one reason is that we do teach math as if it's this kind of alien thing we're supposed to graft onto our thinking, right? But if we're told that it's this kind of completely abstract game made of symbols where you get a nice check mark if you arrange the symbols in the right order and get an X if you arrange the symbols in the wrong order. Uh, it's very easy to see how anyone could be alienated from that. Well, let's talk about an idea, possibly the greatest idea ever written down on the back of a napkin, other than the idea for Miami <laughs> Vice, which was the words MTV plus cops, once written down by Brandon Tartikoff. It's the Laffer curve. It came to define economics. What is this napkin scribbled curve, and what's it have to do with linearity? Well, the, the idea was, and no one really knows exactly how true this napkin story is or isn't. Laffer himself denies that he would do something so crass that is right on a napkin in a fancy restaurant. The question is about the relationship between how high your tax rate is and how much tax money the government actually gets. And it's natural to think of it as being a linear relationship, like the more you raise taxes, the more taxes the government takes in. But in fact, it's more complicated than that. I mean, of course, if tax rates are very low, the government doesn't get much tax money. But if tax rates are very high past a certain point, what happens is that people just stop working because it's not worth it, or they work in kind of uh, beyond the reach of the government's hand. They work in informal or underground ways. And so the shape of that relationship, um, as Laffer observed, is more like a curve that sort of goes up for a while and then it peaks. And then if the tax rate is somehow like 95% or something, it goes down. So that's that's the curve. It's a curve, not a line. Lines, they just uh, keep on going up and up, right? A line only has one direction it can go. Of course, all the controversy is really not about 
the existence of the curve itself. It's about where any particular economy like ours is on the curve. Are we past that point where decreasing taxes would actually increase government revenue? That's certainly what a lot of people in the 80s around Ronald Reagan thought that I think by consensus now turned out pretty much to be wrong. Right. So Laffer, by the way, was the economist Arthur Laffer. And yeah, it is a curve. But as the story goes, he drew a pretty straight curve, what would be called a bell curve. And did he even or did the people who believed in his theories think that that must have been the way? Or is that just the easiest way to draw a curve? (laughs) What's cool is that for something like this, when you're dealing with something like the economy, you're not going to write down a precise right. equation for this curve. Especially That's if you have a happen. napkin available as your materials. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, even if he'd had access to like a complicated computer-aided design device instead of a napkin, he still wouldn't have been able to write down a precise equation because that's not the way economics works. And so in some sense, in math, people think of it as an area where you're supposed to be super precise. But in some sense, what we do in math is try to strip away unnecessary precision that's not relevant and, then just, and just say, well, okay – is what's going on that it's a straight line or what's going on is that it's like a hump-shaped thing that goes up and then goes down. And all that's really important is that it goes up and then it goes down. It doesn't matter exactly what curve it is. That at least demonstrates that there's push and pull. But my question is, why are policymakers or people who agree with, you know, trickle-down economics, why are they looking at a curve? Why are they looking at a hypothetical curve as opposed to just looking at decades and decades of tax data, not just from America, but all these other countries that have decent systems of collecting taxes? Well, because that's complicated (laughs) and simple things are useful. I mean, what the famous saying about the Lapper curve is that you can explain it to a congressman in six minutes and he can talk about it for six months. Yeah. And that's what makes it so effective. But sometimes, you know, the fact that something is simple doesn't mean it's wrong. It means it cuts to the heart of the matter. Yes. And so a simple concept is when you talk about how every American will be obese by 2048. (laughs) Right. So that can't be right. And yet I could show you a graph that indicates that it is. Exactly. And this is, uh, there are these immensely powerful, wonderful, flexible mathematical methods. And they're great, but you have to pay attention to what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're saying. If you don't do this step when you ask yourself, does this answer make sense? You're not doing mathematics, you're doing something else. So in this particular case, um, there was a paper that drew these so-called linear regressions and estimated that all Americans will be obese by, or obese or overweight technically, by the year 2048, which first of all is not going to happen, but even more comic than that from my point of view is that they separated it out by race and they found that uh, that for among black people, not all black people were going to be obese until something like 2070. <laughs> so, so, so somehow they were saying in 2048, all Americans will be obese, but only 80% of black Americans will be, which is very hard to reconcile. Yeah, as those 20% are American too. Right. Yeah. Wait, where are they? Where'd they go? How did these guys not catch their... Why, why, how is there no whoopsie in the lab at the time they were coming up with their numbers? You know, you will see all the time somebody work a problem in a math class and they're trying to compute, you know, who knows what, like the mass of water that's in some bucket or something or some sort of ridiculous word problem of the sort that we often assign. And they'll come up with negative four grams. Yeah. And you say to yourself, how can, you know, clearly that can't be the answer. You should write, I must have made a mistake because there can't be negative four grams of water. But in some sense, if we convey the idea that math is about following the steps and writing down whatever you get and not thinking, then those are the kinds of answers we'll get. I mean, the blame is really on the teacher in that scenario, not on the student. There's a great 
charge that I guess people like me, people drawn to your book will get based on their maybe math thinkers already and they'll like knowing how the people who made mistakes made those mistakes. They'll enjoy reading the stories of the very clever MIT kids who game the system. But what about the people who don't think like this already? You know, if you could if you could put this book in everyone's hands or this way of thinking in everyone's hands and get our culture to change its thinking, how in what ways would you get the culture to change how it thinks about math and therefore the world? What I would like to see is for some of these deep ideas of mathematics, ideas which are sort of part of our cultural heritage, which people have hammered out over many centuries of hard work. Um, I'd like to make a world where it is safe and accepted and customary to talk in that language, not in a book that's declared as a math book, not in a magazine that's declared as a science magazine, but in a regular editorial in the New York Times or a regular article in a magazine or a regular piece on Slate. In the same way, and I think we've really seen that happening with economics. It is no longer considered weird and technical to talk about the incentives that people face. That language has moved out of the academy and people have seen how useful it is. And I think there is space for more of mathematics to get out there as well. Jordan Ellenberg is the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. He'll be doing a bunch of pieces in Slate the first week of June from the book, from the news. Jordan, thank you very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Here's a game I play with my son. In fact, here we are playing it right now. What is one plus C? One plus C equals seven. All right. That is correct. Can you crack the code? It requires a piece of common knowledge about the natural world and a piece of specialized knowledge, knowledge a New Yorker might have more than someone from another place. Here's another example of our game. Next question. What is... R plus two. Okay. Uh, M. That's an acceptable answer. What else is an acceptable answer? It could also be B, F. Yes, that is correct. I played the game in honor of Massimo Vignelli. Vignelli, who died on Tuesday, was the graphic designer who popularized the Helvetica font, designed the American Airlines logo, designed Bloomingdale's Big Brown Bag, And his crowning achievement was designing the iconic New York City subway map in use during the 1970s. Sorry, it wasn't a map. Vignelli was quick to remind us it was a diagram. The map was not to scale in that lengths of the lines meant different things in different places. But it was sort of to the scale and ambition of New York itself. Just as you can't measure one New Yorker's dreams against another or how a New Yorker defines richness, this subway map was rich in information, appeal, and color color. Remember that as you think about our game. This music, by the way, that you're hearing is a piece called Conductor by Alexander Chen, and it was written to turn the Vignelli map into a musical instrument. 
Literalists hated the map because water wasn't blue. It was like gray and parks aren't square. These would seem like extraneous details to a subway rider who just wants to know how to get from one station to another. I mean, you'd think a real New Yorker who's in a hurry and to the point would seek out the same qualities in his maps. Blue water. Who needs that? The map was eventually felled by a classic New York hazard, the complaints of New Yorkers. They wanted a little more literalism in their maps. So the current subway maps are blue where there's water. And Vignelli's map, well, that is now part of the collection of the Museum of Modern Art. The current subway map also standardized the colors of the subway lines, which brings us back to what is 7 minus A? 7 minus A. 7 minus A equals one, two, or three. That is correct. All right, it's time to explain the game. So what are we talking about here? Trains. Well, what kind of trains? Subway trains. So we're talking about the color of the different trains on the New York City subway. So let's do an example. You ready? So if I say one plus E, the one train is what color? The one train is red. And if I say E, the E train is what color? Blue. So when you add the colors red and blue, what color do you get? Seven is purple. And there's our explanation. Do you get it? The one, two, and three line is red. The A, C, and E line is blue. So if you add them together, you if you add the colors red and blue, you get purple. And what's the purple line? That's the seven lines. That's how you play the game. Massimo Vignelli, by the way, was 83 years old when he passed away at his home on Tuesday. His home, by the way, is on East 67th Street. So you're going to want to take the four or the five to Grand Central. Then you transfer to the six. It's three stops to Hunter College. Here, right here. I'll show you on this map. And that is it. Andrea Salenzi produces Slate Podcast. She takes the M from West 4th. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, starts off at Penn Station. He's going to want to take the E, then you go to Jamaica, catch the AirTran, go to JFK, take a flight to LA, and then you're on your own. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. There are a lot of great reviews up there. You can search for Slate Gist on your favorite podcast app. I'll name one, Stitcher. We're also the Slate Daily Podcast, but also do subscribe to the Gist podcast feed directly. That would help us. And what would help you is our daily email. Go to slate.com slash gist email, and we'll send it to you if every time the gist is ready. You can play the gist from that email and email us directly at thegist at slate.com. Backpacks and other large containers are subject to random search, and a crowded subway is no excuse for an inappropriate touch. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.